Welcome to Sunrise, your weekday podcast bringing you a fresh squeeze into Florida's news, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Tremel Gomes, reporting from the Florida Capitol, as some in Florida's congressional delegation make a pitch to rename a federal courthouse after the state's first black Supreme Court justice. There's not too many things lawmakers can really agree upon. So to see Rick Scott and Marco Rubio sign on with Al Lawson, I think that makes the story unique in itself. When there are no natural predators for an invasive species, making population control a sport is one creative solution. We're trying to be the predator when it comes to lionfish. There's not really anything keeping their populations in check, or at least there wasn't for many years. And many students are taking the risk by packing college football stadiums. But is it causing a spike in COVID infections? but I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I got the cold that everybody else has got going around. I mean, it was fun while I was there, but now I'm paying the price for it. We've got back-to-back Sunrise interviews today. First, we get an exclusive scoop on a story that's breaking today, which examines whether college football games are causing a surge in COVID-19 cases. Fresh Take Florida reporter Elizabeth Velasquez joins us to share her findings. Also, Florida politics reporter Jason Delgado drops in to talk about a bipartisan effort to rename a federal courthouse in Tallahassee after the late Justice Joseph Woodrow Hatchett. And Florida's Fish and Wildlife Commission announces the top predators in the Invasive Lionfish Challenge. The agency's public information specialist, Amanda Nally, joins the program. We'll cover top stories trending around the state and capital, plus we have your calendar of political events and more. But first, a word from our sponsor. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics. Following is a paid political advertisement paid for by Florida Education Champions. Online sports betting, it's legal and it's coming to Florida. With passage of our amendment next year, any tax revenues collected are required to supplement the Florida Educational Enhancement Trust Fund. Hundreds of millions of dollars in new revenue for students and teachers, with more choices and competition for Florida consumers. Be a champion today. Learn more and request your petition at FloridaEducationChampions.com. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, October 7th. It's National Frappe Day as well as National Inner Beauty and LED Light Day. In 1959, people on Earth got the first glimpse of the dark side of the moon. Soviet spacecraft Luna 3 took pictures of the far side of Luna. The images sent by the probe covered about 70% of the far side of our Earth's natural satellite. On this day in 1996, Fox News broadcast for the first time. The 24-hour news channel, using the slogan Fair and Balance, was created by Australian-American businessman and media tycoon Rupert Murdoch. And on this day in 2001, American and British troops began airstrikes against Al-Qaeda and Taliban targets after the Taliban refused to hand over Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Our first Sunrise interview today is with Elizabeth Velasquez, a student journalist at the University of Florida. She investigated whether college football games are causing a surge in positive COVID-19 cases and is here to share her findings with us. The story is reported under the Fresh Take Florida Journalism Program and is being published today on the WUFT website for the University of Florida. The story will also be distributed statewide for publication by news organizations across the state. Elizabeth Velasquez, welcome to Sunrise and thanks for sharing your exclusive reporting, which basically goes in depth 
about how our packed college football stadiums are faring with the ongoing threats of COVID-19 and the more serious Delta variant. So share with us, what's in your coverage? Thank you so much for having me, Tramel. It is an honor for me to be part of your podcast. And I looked into whether or not college football games and the return of college football games to college towns such as the University of Florida, Florida State University, University of Central Florida, University of South Florida, overall Florida schools, were there any increases in COVID cases due to these college football games or were there not any obvious surges in these cases? So from looking in and watching on screen, we're all expecting these crowded football stadiums to be a super spreader event. And essentially some people were or may have been infected, but it didn't result in the massive spread that we were all anticipating it could be, correct? Right. So the question here for my story was, have these crowded college football stadiums turned out safer than everyone expected? And the numbers are showing, yes, they are. Health experts have offered various explanations for this, including that there have maybe been higher than expected vaccination numbers or that the Delta spike is also going down. So um, we have not seen as uh, many cases since the college football season began. Also, Other experts have also proposed that because of the lack of contact tracing or just not a standard method of evaluating these cases, there might be some concerns of whether the cases are being accurately reported or not. But overall, there have not been any spikes per se since the college football season began. All right. So that's important finding there. At least it provides some ease for those who are thinking about attending a football game. But there is still some mystery because we don't know if the infections are being accounted for due to lack of contact tracing. Anything else that we should know about your story here and your finding? I know you talked to some students. Are they taking precautions on their own seriously? So I did interview um, from experts to students. So for example, um, with the epidemiology uh, associate professor, Dr. Cindy Prince at the University of Florida, she did propose that we are on the end of the Delta spike, and that some people might already have immunity to COVID because they already had coronavirus. However, I did speak with students as well, so I was able to get both perspectives. And for the students, they're honestly just wanting to enjoy the football games, the atmosphere, being able to go back in person to these football games and have the freedom in the state of Florida to just go back to the football games and enjoy it. However, not using any mask, which is what poses the question of how big of a risk is it? Many students, for example, uh, Sean Sorek, he did refer to the moment in which he went to the game and he felt sick afterwards, but he referred to it as the common cold that everyone had that was going around on campus. I mean, you have the signs around campus, right? Masks expected, but then you go to the games and then nobody's wearing them. So, I mean, I feel safe enough because I got vaccinated. You know, but I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I got the cold that everybody else has got going around. I mean, it was fun while I was there, but now I'm paying the price for it. He said that he felt better days after, but he decided to not test. So potentially that could be a positive test. That could be a negative test. We're not really sure. And because there isn't any mandatory testing on campuses, at least at the University of Florida, there is no mandatory testing. We're not sure if the students are actually going to get tested or if they're just curing the COVID-19 at their own apartments and just kind of spreading it around. Unless what I have gets worse, I'm not going to get tested. So, and I think that's like what a lot of people are experiencing. Like, 
unless they're like really, really sick, I don't think people are going to get tested. But there is ease to know that like there has not been any spikes associated directly with the college football games. Um, and I was also able to communicate with Governor DeSantis's office. And they did mention that just being able to see the students go back and enjoy these games and that since the um, August 25 peak, the cases have actually decreased by more than 95%. And these are estimated infections by now casting. Um, and this was stated by Secretary of Governor DeSantis, Christina Pushaw. The press secretary there. And you also spoke to a faculty union or president there. What, who did you talk to and what did they have to say? Yes, so I did speak with Stephen Kern, who is the co-chairman of the Pandemic Task Force for the United Faculty of Florida, and he expressed concern. With Florida being, being one of the two or three leading states in terms of deaths that result from COVID infection. So my question is, where do we stand? What do we stand for? And uh, I'm, I remain concerned about that and concerned about its effect on the campus on, and on the community. And he did actually write a statement in which they were requesting as a union for the university to take more precautions, um, even with teachers in their classrooms, um, mandating masks and things of that sort. However, he said that those petitions were ignored. Uh, so potentially he is concerned for his community and for his well-being. Um, he did mention that he is a fan of football games, but he does not think that this is the right moment for people to be going out and not wearing masks at a super spreader event that he considers is a super spreader event. So, Elizabeth Velasquez, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me and sharing your important coverage that sheds light on the crowded stadiums that we see over the weekends. Thank you so much, Tramel, for having me. It was an honor to be here. Thanks to the entire team at Fresh Take Florida. A growing number of businesses from concessions and sporting events to restaurants and big box chain stores have stopped accepting cash as payment for goods and services, forcing people to use debit or credit cards or technology to pay their tab. They are ditching the bills. However, bills filed Wednesday by Representative Matt Wilhite and Senator Chevron Jones would put an end to the no-cash practice by requiring most Florida businesses to accept cash as payment for goods and services for in-store purchases. You can learn more about that proposal, House Bill 233, and the complete story by Christine Jordan Sexton on FloridaPolitics.com. Here's your calendar of events. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission will conclude a two-day meeting with discussions on issues such as the sale of largemouth bass for food and commission-managed shooting ranges. That's in St. Augustine, where today's meeting begins at 8.30 this morning. At 10, the Florida Council on Arts and Culture and the Florida Historical Commission will hold a joint meeting in Key West. And the Florida Retirement System Actual Assumption Conference will discuss issues involving the state pension system. Also at 10, candidate for Governor Charlie Crist will hold an endorsement announcement in Broward County. The Florida Supreme Court is scheduled to release its regular weekly opinions at 11. The State Board of Education will meet to consider whether 11 school districts are complying with rules aimed at preventing school mask requirements. That's at 1. The Florida Board of Nursing will meet in Osceola County at 1.30. 
A formal investiture ceremony will be held for Florida Supreme Court Justice John Curiel, who was appointed to the court last year by Governor Ron DeSantis. That's at 4 o'clock at the courthouse. And Republican Congressman Byron Donalds is slated to hold a town hall meeting in Lee County at 6 p.m. Now let's take a moment to drop in on the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's two-day meeting, which is wrapping up today. Commissioners announced and honored the winners of the 2021 Lionfish Challenge. Amanda Nally, Public Information Specialist for the agency, joins us with the details. Amanda Nally, welcome to Sunrise. So there was just a competition to really tackle this invasive species known as lionfish here in Florida. Yet another invasive species. So tell us about it. What's this competition all about and what was the outcome? The Lionfish Challenge is a lionfish removal incentive program. This is the sixth year that we've had the challenge. It runs throughout the summer. And what it does is it encourages commercial and recreational harvest of lionfish. And if you don't know, lionfish is a non-native invasive species that has a negative impact on both habitat and other species. And so it's something that we're really concerned about and that we want to encourage people to remove them whenever they can. How did the competition go and who won? The competition went great. There's a recreational winner, which we call the Lionfish King, uh, was Brooks Feaser, and he took, I believe, 1,632 lionfish. And then Rachel Bowman, who has been competing with us since the get-go, um, she has been kind of a someone that we've put out there to showcase lionfish harvest. She actually took home the Commercial Champion Award this year for the first time. Um, and so we're really proud and excited for her as well. Uh, it was a great competition. Um, there were over 21,000 lionfish removed this summer. So how is that helping the effort of eradicating lionfish, or is that even possible at this point? That's a great question. Unfortunately, we don't use the term eradication when it comes to lionfish because we know that that's probably never going to happen. But what we are aiming for is control. So we're trying to be the predator when it comes to lionfish. There's not really anything keeping their populations in check, or at least there wasn't for many years. Um, you know, now we're out there, we are the predator for lionfish. So that is helping. But I, I'll be honest, another thing that helped was there was an incident where a lot of lionfish were getting these lesions on them. So a disease that came through and that actually helped some of that population as well. All right. That's fascinating. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me here on Sunrise and giving that information and all the best to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. There is a proposal to retitle a federal courthouse in Tallahassee after the late Florida Supreme Court Justice Joseph Woodrow Hatchett. Florida politics reporter Jason Delgado covered that story and is here to talk about it. All right. So, Jason Delgado, welcome to Sunrise. Glad to finally have you on the program. How are you? Jamel, I'm living the life. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, I see that you did some reporting on a proposal to retitle a federal courthouse here in Tallahassee. Tell us about it. That's right. So Wednesday, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, Florida's two senators, they rejoined Al Lawson's pitch to rename the federal courthouse in Tallahassee. And who are they planning to rename it after? Great question. So they're going to name it after Florida's first Black Supreme Court justice. His name's Joseph Woodrow Hatchett. And why are they doing this? Well, I think it's a multifaceted thing. For one, it's Florida's first Black Supreme Court justice. 
Um, and he's also kind of a pioneer in his own right. Rick Scott hinted to that in a press release. Uh, so beyond just the Supreme Court, he was also one of the first Black judges to serve in a federal appeals court, too. And that was through the Deep South. Is it unique to see this hint of bipartisanship around the renaming or the retitling of this courthouse in the name of Judge Hatchett? Well, as you know, there's not too many things lawmakers can really agree upon. So to see Rick Scott and Marco Rubio sign on with Al Lawson, I think that makes the story unique in itself. So what is going to happen next? What's the next process to, to seeing this actual retitling become reality? Well, it's legislation, so it'll go through the typical process. But I think the big key here is that we've got a large chunk of Florida's delegation putting their weight behind it. So for those who don't know, give us some insight about Judge Hatchett. Judge Hatchett started on the bench at the age of 42 in 1975. He was appointed by Reuben Askew. He's also a FAMU grad and a Howard Law grad. He passed away uh, at 88 in April of 2021. In short, I think it's undeniable that this uh, gentleman was a pioneer. Uh, and he also was like a major player in Tallahassee. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for taking this time to speak with me here on Sunrise. Always a pleasure, Tramel. And finally, as you jumpstart your day, thank you for tuning in for today's Sunrise. I'm Tramel Gomes at the Capitol, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for a fresh squeeze into Florida's news, politics, and culture.